Hi, this is the Organisational Success Academy from the Oxford Review, bringing you the very latest research in leadership, management, organisational development, design, transformation and change, human resources and human capital, organisational learning, coaching and work psychology from around the world to make you the most up-to-date and knowledgeable person in the room. Uh, Today, we welcome Stella Collins. Stella is the author of the book Neuroscience for Learning and Development, uh, How to Apply Neuroscience and Psychology for Improved Learning and Training, uh, which has been published by Cogan Page, and it's in its second edition. Stella is the co-founder and chief learning officer at Stella Labs in Belgium and is a pretty heavy-duty learning and development consultant with more than 20 years' experience in learning and development. Welcome, Stella. Hello. Nice to be with you, David. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, do you want to just start off by telling us some more about yourself, what your background is, and what kind of led up to writing the book? Oh, crikey. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm a, a psychologist by training a long time ago. Um, I accidentally fell into uh, information technology, became a programmer for quite a long time. And then at some point, I was offered this, this hat, this role of uh, tech support and training manager. Tech support, no problem, could do that fine. Training, I'd only ever experienced really horrible training. So I really didn't want to be involved in training or be a training manager, but you know, I had this job. So I avoided it for quite a time. Um, took on a couple of very good people, uh, one of whom really inspired me and got me thinking about training in a really different way and got me interested in the psychology of learning or kind of reignited my interest in the psychology of learning. And I suddenly realized, actually, I love learning. I love supporting people to learn. So I kind of quite comfortably moved into the field of training out of the field of of pure IT and, and worked for many years as a trainer, you know, really practical trainer, but always, always checking, you know, what's, what's the evidence behind what we're doing? What's the science behind what we're doing? You know, people give me these models and tell me these sort of, you know, great stories, but actually, is there any evidence for it? So I was always kind of using that scientific background to go back and double check. And then I'd always quite fancied writing a book, always loved loved writing, written loads of blogs and written sort of white papers and things like that. And really was approached by Kogan Page and they said, look, we're looking for somebody to write this book. Um, they'd see me speaking at conferences and things like that. And I said, yes, I jumped at the chance and really enjoyed, you know, enjoyed the process of the writing, enjoyed collecting my thoughts. And as I said to somebody um, yesterday on Twitter, the process of writing a book is just like a fantastic learning journey for yourself because you suddenly answer all those questions that you always wanted to answer. So, yeah, so out came the book. Yes, exactly. I I would agree with that. It's it's an amazing learning process uh, and particularly, I suppose it's a little bit like teaching in a way. You've you've got to do your research and you start answering some of the questions that you've got. And um, I was very so passionate me... that we made it practical. So whilst I really want the science in there, I really wanted to be the practical application of the science. Well, actually, that that leads on quite nicely to my next question. Um, So how does the knowledge of neuroscience, you know, what does it actually do for learning and development practitioners? And does it really matter? You can be a great practitioner without knowing any of the neuroscience. However, I think you can improve your professionalism, your capability and the results you get 
by knowing a little bit about, you know, people's brains and how they learn. Um, I think what you're messing with brains. If you're training people, that's what you're doing. You're trying to change their brains, whether you know it or not. So I think it's important that you do know a little bit about them. And I think what it enables you to do is make good choices about your design and delivery methods. When you know there's evidence behind what you're doing, when you know there's process, you know, you kind of know how people get motivated and things like that, that actually helps you make better choices about your design and delivery and helps you achieve the results that you want to get. So it's not fundamental. There are lots of great trainers out there, but they're usually either copying what somebody else does, or they're just kind of fortunate in what they do. But I think what this allows you to be is much more thoughtful about how you how you deliver what you deliver. Yes, and probably more systematic about going around the process of engaging learners, engaging their curiosity and and having the outcomes that you actually want rather than leaving it to look, I think. And very much seeing learning as a learning process and not a learning event. You know, a lot of people kind of get the, perhaps the whether it's face-to-face or the digital piece, the piece where you're with the learner, they get that piece, but they don't recognize that there's actually a whole process before and after that, that the learner has to participate in. And actually, when you understand how learning happens, then you can actually facilitate that process much better over that long-term journey for the person who's doing the learning. Yes, and it, it kind of helps the, the the design process to be more sympathetic to the way that people do learn and the way that the the brain operates. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And why, you know, why make it more difficult for a brain? Why make it more difficult for a person to learn? It's like putting, you know, it's like putting square wheels on a bike. It would still go, but it doesn't go as well. <laughs> a nice analogy. I like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And in fact, some of the ways that we, uh, as learning and development pro- professionals, we go about designing learning and the way that we go about teaching or facilitating, um, actually makes the process harder for the learner um, rather than a more natural process of learning. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, standard school and standard kind of university oh, practice good. is is really not helping. Um, and it's really challenging to change that environment. I think at least in organisations, people are thinking a bit more about it from a practical well we can't we can't spend all day learning we can't spend all day sitting down we've actually got to go and do some stuff so actually they're more inclined to actually put things into practice rather than just really build up a lot of theory yes yes and and in a way that doesn't actually go very far both inside the brain yeah. um, largely because it's it's just working memory stuff uh, yeah uh, as as opposed to and I like what you were saying earlier, actually, that's creating change, not just change for the individual, but it's it's actually neuronal change. But we'll come on to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that intrigues me generally, and I, I think we've got similar backgrounds, so my first degree is psychology with a, quite a chunk of neurology, which drew me to okay. the book, I think. Um, and I teach learning, well, I teach lecturers to teach at 
at the university here, um, which is one of my roles. Um, so I've got a background in education as well. Um, one of the things that does intrigue me is the kind of the, the sheer number of kind of neuroscience myths or neuro myths as they become that, that kind of do the rounds. Um, things like a belief in learning styles, uh, the whole industry that's built up around the whole idea of left and right brainness, if that's a thing. Um, and so what are your favourite neuro myths and what are the problems with them? So one of my favourites is the left right brain myth. Um, but actually some of the myths that are built upon those myths. So I think, you know, for a while there was this myth that you're either left-brained or right-brained, which, you know, is clearly not true. You have both sides of your brain and they both work together. They work synchronously and they work asynchronously, but, you know, they need to be together. Um, and then I think there are some people started saying, because they, they didn't want to be seen to talk about the left-right brain difference, they would then say there's no difference between the brain. The left and the right brain are, are the same. They're not different. Whereas they actually are different and they do different things. It's just they're very specific different things. And in order to do a real functional thing, to read or to write or to have a conversation, you actually need both halves. And it's only when you're either somebody's neurologically damaged and they're doing specific experiments or they're doing, you know, clever, fancy psychology experiments where they're deliberately preventing the two sides talk, then you can see strangeness and weird things happen. But in, you know, your average person in an average day, they're using both sides. So I think that's a really interesting one. And the other one that's really seems to crop up a lot at the moment is the whole dopamine is great thing. And dopamine is neither good nor bad. Dopamine is totally vital. We need it, but we need the right amounts at the right time in the right proportions. So if you have too much dopamine in the wrong place at the wrong time, you can end up schizophrenic. You have too little dopamine in the wrong place at the wrong time, you end up with Parkinson's disease. Um, you know, dopamine is, is an incredibly specific, very, very, very complex uh, neurotransmitter in, in a very complex network that you need. So you can't just say, oh, you know, great, I've had a hit of dopamine. Yes, maybe. It, it sort of helps people kind of get a grip on it. But I think they have to be really careful about that. You know, dopamine is good myth. Yes. And also it's it's only one of a number of neurotransmitters. It's not the only and the way I hear people talking about it is if that's it. Yes. And you yes. Think, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> yes, precisely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um what one of the things that I liked about the book, or I like about the book, um is that it goes into the, the fundamentals of neurology. So if you know nothing about it, um, it's a really good primer, actually. And and I, I, I quite enjoy it. It was kind of reaffirming some of the stuff from my, my degree many years ago. Good. Um, uh, and, and some more up-to-date stuff that uh, I hadn't covered in those days. Um, and you've got a great in chapter. Uh, a great chapter that's entitled um, what to do when someone says neuroscience says particularly over claiming what the research actually says or an over extrapolation of the research and one of the great sections that you've got are the six questions to ask when someone says and we hear this a lot something like research shows can you just go over what those questions are because i think they'd be very useful for people so these are sort of six questions that if you use one question on its own, 
it won't really tell you whether it's genuine research or not, but it's kind of when you use all six together, you can get a really good feel as to whether, you know, is there something genuine going on here or are we just kind of, you know, is it a neuromyth or is it some neurohype? So the first one is about, you know, who did the research? And what do they mean by research? So you often hear people say we did some research. What they meant was they did a survey. And that's definitely not neuroscience. It's usually not really science in my view either. Um, it's maybe social science, which is fine in itself, but it's be, being clear what is what, what do you mean by research? Um, and then who did the research? So has it been done by, you know, a reputable university with a great science department? Has it been done by a reputable company who are, you know, scientists themselves? That's that's fine. If it has, then that's, you know, that's a kind of tick in the right box. But if it was done by Joe Bloggs down the road, who just happens to have bought, you know, a set of, of uh, ERG monitors, you just, just might want to be careful as to, to what they're saying. Um and then having established who it is, then you have to think what's on their agenda. So, for instance, you know, big pharmaceutical companies are very good. They're doing some fantastic research, but they've got something to sell you. So they are quite good at cherry picking the research that proves that their product is better than, you know, the other people's product. And, you know, right now we've got a lot to be grateful to for from pharmaceutical companies. But they have something to sell. And you so, you know, even universities now are usually funded by somebody. So what what is on the agenda? What can you what can you pick up from that? Um, where was it published? So if it's published in you know, a peer-reviewed journal, that's probably fine. And I know there's a lot of debate going on now about how to do peer review and should it be you know, reviewed first on the internet and then sent to journals? Should it be done in journals first, then are produced on the internet. But, you know, if it appears first in the um, the local paper or on your local radio or, you know, Radio 1 or something, then it's probably not been peer-reviewed. It's something that is, is a piece of news. It's not necessarily a piece of good scientific research. Um, and then related to that, again, is when was it published? Just because something was published 100 years ago doesn't make it invalid. You know, we still use the thought about Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve because that's actually you can you can measure that. You can measure it again. It's repeatable. If it was published last week, that might make it really cutting edge and really extraordinarily important. Or it might just make it, you know, a weird outlier that somebody's done a piece of research. So thinking about when it was published and how often has it been repeated? How much has that publication either been um, cited or how often has somebody else managed to replicate the the study. And, you know, we do know with psychology, there's an awful lot of difficulty in, in replication. Um, so we've got four, haven't we? So number five is how was the science done? So one of the challenges with neuroscience in particular, so really pure neuroscience, is usually the groups of um, uh, I want to call them specimen subjects <laughs> are very small very small. The guinea pigs are small, small numbers, and usually for very specific, you know, very intense, specific question. So it's quite hard to extrapolate that out to a bigger question. And this is one of the challenges that people who sort of say, well, we don't like to use neuroscience in training, we'll talk about it because they'll say, but that's only one tiny piece. And actually you're talking about it in a, in a much bigger context. So that's quite an important one. Um, and then how is the research done? You know, were people doing double blind experiments, which is great, but you can't always do those. 
So I think it's, you know, it's that kind of how was the research done? And then finally, the last one is what do the results say? So most scientists will produce a result that says, well, in these circumstances with these people and this, you know, it's very conditional. If this, if this, 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 this. And if that's the case, then you're probably going to get something that says, you know, move forward. It, it, this answers one small question. Let's take the next question forward. But if the results say, this is fantastic, it's going to change our lives. And it looks like a magic bullet. It probably isn't. So those are the six. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I think I just think it's important that people, you know, you hear this thing research says and, yeah. and just saying, you know, what research, by whom and where, and and can we have a look at it? I think it's really important because yeah. there are a lot of things that masquerade as, as research and certainly we come across an awful lot of um, articles and and what are meant to be studies and when we have a look at them they're either you know hugely biased because they're by say a consultancy who's trying to flog something and that's a common thing mm -hmm. so we see a lot of models that are kind of exist through there um or um when you actually have a look at it that it's been extrapolated way out of the context that it was conducted in yeah and it wasn't for this reason whatsoever. And when you have a look at it, it's actually got no validity in that in that context. Yeah. Um, and that more research needs doing. And I yeah. And I, I think that's a it's 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 kind of a, a bit of a danger area for people who aren't aware. It's, people start to accept things that yeah. need to they be. They they accept it because it looks like an expert has said it. And mm. you know, I'm the, I'm a hopeless at remembering citations. So I know so I work with some people and they can just, you know, they can list off a group of citations. I cannot do that, but I know if I read a piece of research, I've, you know, I've, I've kind of got the, the gist in my head and I could dig it up and find it again for you. And I usually, if I come across an interesting piece of research, then I look for something else that contradicts it. You know, has anybody said this is rubbish? And then you've got to compare the two. But, but not everybody has the time to do that. So I think that's why we need, you know, things like the Oxford Review, Oxford yeah. Review <laughs> who do that research for you, do the checking for you. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think it's important. And, that, and that's the whole basis of evidence-based practice anyway. Yeah. Um, okay. So obviously the book's in its second edition and it's like, it's, dense and thick and there's a uh, in all the right ways of course and we can't do anything but scratch the surface in a in a discussion like this and there's a lot of really great content in here and anybody in learning or learning development or is just interested in neurology of learning should really have a look at the book and the great thing about this is it gives us license to delve into some of my favorite areas so um Let's start with curiosity. What is it and why is it so important in this story of learning? So what is it? I guess it's it's the desire to to explore, to experiment, to test, to find out more. It's a very human condition. And for me, it's it's the, the starting point and the continuation point for all learning. If we get curious, if we can support people to feel curious, if we can help them feel curious, you don't really need to do a lot 
more, maybe, maybe prompt them to do a bit of reflection afterwards. But, you know, if people are curious, they will investigate. They'll go looking. They'll find answers to their own questions, which is much easier than trying to tell people, you will learn this. You know, if they're saying, tell me, tell me more, I want to know more, then you make your job as a, as a you know, as a, a learning facilitator a, a million times easier, but you make the learning job easier. And, you know, this is where dopamine does come in because we do get a shot of dopamine when we're curious or when our curiosity is kind of satisfied. We do get this kind of, you know, feel good. Oh, I've learned, I've learned this thing. Um, but I think curiosity is also... One of the things I've discovered about curiosity recently, and I just think this is a really lovely thing to discover. And again, it's related to the dopamine. So yeah, there are many other neurotransmitters out there, but um, dopamine is an important one for learning. Apparently, if dopamine is high at the back of your nucleus accumbens, which is a tiny little part of your brain, then you feel fear. If dopamine is high at the front of your nucleus accumbens, then you feel curiosity. And I love that balance. And I think it's a very brain thing that, you know, brains aren't one thing or another. It's always this kind of interesting balance. It's a seesaw. Do I feel fearful about this or am I curious? And how can you shift perhaps from one to the other? And curiosity supports learning, but fear actually suppresses and decreases learning for all kinds of reasons yeah in, interesting actually interestingly i was um reading a paper um must have been last week looking at um elation the, the feeling of elation and um the connection between learning and that moment of realization you know when you get that aha moment that and and how closely connected those two things are. And it becomes quite addictive that we become addicted to those kind of aha moment, those realizations. And we kind of see that, see some of this coming up in things like the TikTok videos of things, that surprise at the end, similar kind of thing happening. But from a learning and development point of view, just being able to think through how can I set out the conditions with the learners so that it feeds their that that helps to generate curiosity how can i ask questions that help to generate curiosity and you've you've got a section in the book about that and and then how can we actually move that forward into this into these moments of realization because those moments of elation actually turn people into um having a positive orientation towards learning generally and yeah. and that becomes quite an important part of the, the the learning process and you know and we do know that dopamine is part of our reward pathways so that is you know that is helping you feel rewarded for learning and then as you say it makes you want to learn more and, and learn other things and broaden you know curious people tend to be quite broad in their curiosities. Some people have real specific ones, but they tend to be quite broad. They're curious in lots of things. And it's quite easy to increase your curiosity. You know, just find out something new every day, go a different way to work, expose yourself to new ideas. And that, you know, that doesn't mean you've always got to go looking for amazing new things, but just, yeah, walking a different route to work each day, or maybe just picking up a different book to the sort you normally pick up and read something different. I think one of the things with learning is there's, there's a sort of there is a school of thought that says you don't need any information to learn. 
you know, you can just learn by experience. But I think curiosity shows us that a little bit of knowledge is actually really valuable because it shows us what we don't know. Yes, yes. And it's it's that mixture between experience and knowledge, but also, and, and a, a large part of this is what in the, the, the research we call social mediation of learning, what that means is discussing it with people, because it's that, that not only, and I know we talk about activating pathways and things, but when we listen to other people's perspectives on things, they say things that you go, oh, yeah, I didn't think about yeah. it like that. Yeah. Ah, and what we find is not only do we um, do we interact with knowledge as a an outside thing that comes in, we're actually actively creating knowledge. Yes. And, and it's that process that also then starts to lead into some of the reward centers, the, the, the activation of the, uh, the dopamine pathways and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so an, another area of intense interest in many organizations and learning estab- uh, establishments is this idea of psychological safety. And, and I've got kind of three interlinked questions here about this. What is it? What is psychological <laughs> safety? Um, secondly, what's it got to do with curiosity? And lastly, what's it got to do with learning? So psychological safety is that feeling that you are you are able to speak up, your views will be valued, you'll be respected, you know, for, for your thinking and, and that you won't be slapped down, told off, um, told you stupid, feel feel ridiculous. Um, so it's that and what psychological safety does is it leads to much more open communication. So, you know, that then leads to more curiosity because you're able to share more. Because if I share it with you and you don't tell me I'm stupid, I'll feel more inclined to share with you and I'll be more inclined to listen to you too. So it leads to much more open communication. Um, I know I know um, Google as, a, as an organization did some research on this and they found that um, they, they kind of looked at high performing teams to see what was the difference between high performing teams and low performing teams. And what they found was it was this psychological safety that when, organ- when people in the organization, in the team felt capable to speak up, felt valued and felt able to challenge as well. That's another element of psychological safety. You know, if you hear something that sounds, oh, I really want to investigate that. Um, then they found that those teams were the ones who were performing better. And one of the things they found was that they were making more mistakes than the other teams. But when they dig, dug deeper, what they found was because they were trying more things out than the other teams. So, yeah, they made more mistakes, but they learned from those mistakes and actually had, yeah, far more they, they were learning more. <laughs> yes. And I also think part of that, the psychological safety piece is just the feeling that I can ask the stupid questions without being guarded about it going, who oh, is that? As just even is thinking a is question? that a stupid question. Yes. And what we find is when people are free to just ask whatever comes up into their heads is that they, they create more realizations they have more learning as yeah. a result of that yeah. yeah and and if you're if you're feeling anxious your focus becomes much narrower so you can't see that the broader you know you can't see the broader picture whereas if you're feeling more comfortable more confident your broad your outlook is wider you can listen to 
you know, you, you might ask, I might ask you a question, but I might notice what the other person is, is how they're looking, which will actually give me more information. Whereas if I'm nervous and I'm just asking you this question, I'm not going to look over there. So it, it just broadens the whole perspective we have. Yes, I think that's I, th- I think that's really important. In fact, I, I, I was involved in a, a couple of pieces of research a few years, well, quite a few years ago now, looking at peripheral awareness and learning and um, anxiety and the way that anxiety creates well what we call cognitive tunneling it kind of narrows our focus yeah. it stops us listening um and physically stops us listening if anybody's yeah. been involved in a car accident for example quite often you you will have no memory of any sound because the sound's being cut off and we've and so we we get this kind of moving in effect of of both our physical focus, so our visual focus, but also our cognitive focus. And we move into these kind of cognitive tunnels and we stop listening. And and this has a huge impact on things like organisational change. So when people are anxious and frightened, they're not engaged in the periphery they're not learning things and they're not experimenting and they find it hard to do those kinds of things and yet when they're um when they feel more comfortable and greater levels of of psychological safety they're they're, which is the example you were giving with the google um they're the high-performing teams, that ability to experiment and just try something and see what happens and learn yeah. from it. And, I, and I then communicate and share thing. it. So you reduce that silo mentality. You reduce that, you know, this knowledge is our knowledge. Um, you know, actually, this knowledge is, is available to everybody and let's share it. And then that might, you know, and I know I know um, at science conferences now, they used to be quite limited. And, you know, the psychologists would talk to the psychologists and the neuroscience would talk and, you know, the physicists would talk to the physicists. But there's much more mixing now and people are beginning to see really interesting connections between different branches of science that are really leading to interesting insights. They are, certainly at the university and the research groups. So over the 30-odd, 35 years that I've been involved, we're seeing much more multidisciplinary research yeah. groups where we're seeing physicists and chemists working with psychologists and educationalists, which when I first started in universities a long time ago, that would never have been the case. No. I think you're yeah. right there. Okay, let's just move on a little bit. So one of the big issues right now is kind of online or remote learning. So my question to you is this, uh, and and I know this is part of the update in the book, uh, is how does an understanding of neurology help with online teaching and learning? So I think it helps us to understand the differences for people when we're online, you know, because there are differences. There are some I think there are some really good things I think online can can help to democratise learning because everybody can be online at the same time and having the same level of, of input. So, you know, I think I'm definitely a fan of good online learning, but there are some differences and we need to therefore be aware of what those differences are to, to accommodate them. So some of the things that science has shown that online learning has, has changed or online online use generally, digital, you know, our digital world. Um, One is we've become poorer, apparently, at kind of in-depth reading. 
So we're really good now at just scanning. You know, you just scan the headlines, you scan the Google, you scan whatever it is, scan Wikipedia. We're really good at that, but we're actually much, oh, not everybody, but, you know, we are challenged with reading more deeply. And, you know, a, a lot of people do learn a lot of stuff from reading. So I think that's a challenge that isn't to do with the digital learning itself, but it's to do with the impact of being digital. Um, sleep disturbance is a big one. You know, that that disturbance that uh, the light from our digital technology has. And then sometimes people will say to me, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, they've now got blue filters and blue screens, so you don't have the same impact of the light. But actually, digital technology is designed to be attention grabbing, interesting and fascinating. And that's not what you need just as you're about to go to sleep. You actually need to be a bit bored and a little bit kind of like, you know, falling dropping off. So I think, and, and sleep disturbance is terrible for learning. You know, if you don't sleep after you've learned something or after you've had something input, it won't go into your long-term memory. There's so much evidence to show that. So sleep's usually important. Um, I think other things that has shown up are that people are now quite good at knowing where the information is, even if they can't recall the information. So their knowledge now is about where do I find it, not what is it, which is fine if you've got time to find it. But if you're having to deal with a life-threatening emergency or any kind of, you know, you know, you're in a meeting and you think, I know there's a really good model for describing this thing, but I can't remember what it is. And I therefore can't use it right now because I can't go and Google it while I'm in the middle of the office. Um, so I think that's an interesting one that has an impact. And then I think, the key one is the distraction. So I already kind of referred a bit to that in terms of sleep, um, which apparently leads to not only are you not necessarily paying attention to stuff, but there's some research that shows it actually leads to lack of insight or loss of insight into the learning process. So when people have been, um, you know, they've tested, tested learning and some people were distracted and some people were not. And the ones who were not distracted actually had quite a lot of insight, not only into what they'd learned, but how they'd learned it, which is valuable. And the ones who'd been distracted kind of knew the, the information, but they weren't aware of how they'd learned it. They weren't able to reflect. They didn't have that metacognition ability to understand how they got there. So those are all challenges that we need to be aware of and therefore need to adapt to in order to make digital learning valuable yes yeah I, I, th I think that's important and in fact i was at a meeting at the university talking about this very thing yesterday and um one of the things that was we, we were looking at um this issue of distraction of the student um and and engagement of the student and one of the things that we've we've kind of realized and we're, we're, we're just doing a bit of research looking at it at the moment is that there's a big difference between um going into so one of the activities a lot of learning development people do is put people into groups yeah right and zoom uh, teams and all the rest of it have a function for allowing that but then comes the question is is it having the same effect as online as being in person and the answer to that seems no it's not exactly the same process and it doesn't have the same effect on the learner so some of the things that we're noticing that are occurring online that don't tend to occur like i mean in 
person. So there's going back to this idea of social mediation of learning, this idea that when we talk about it, we get a fuller picture of it. We we're, we we become more engaged in what this thing is and like what it looks like and from different angles and things. And we're finding that that's not occurring to the same extent online and in these groups. And there seems to be something about interpersonal connection that seems to be involved in this. And we're not sure why yet, um, but, but there does seem to be a big difference between online or a difference anyway, between the learning that's occurring in online groups and the learning that's occurring in um, uh, face-to-face groups. And another piece of uh, really interesting research I was reading and I really could do with diving deeper into it is about the fact that as humans, we're very used to seeing people, hearing them, smelling them, <laughs> being able to sense their presence, you know, the kind of the, the, mm. the, the waves of warmth or not that come off them, yes. uh, their physical movement, you know, we're very aware of that. And one of the challenges apparently with, with Zoom and things is we haven't got all that information and our brains are kind of going around looking for it and they can't find it. So our brain knows there's something not quite right. And it's causing that kind of cognitive dissonance, which again is, you know, if you've got cognitive dissonance, that shrinks you down again because you're not you're not certain what's going on. So there's some really interesting stuff that I think that is is being investigated and is throwing up. Yeah, in fact, that's one of the explanations. People talk about Zoom fatigue. That's one of the explanations for online meeting fatigue is that there's um, the the cognitive load is extra yes. online because we're searching for all that information that's missing. And, yeah. and it's harder to, to create those relationships online compared to um, face-to-face because of all that extra information, even if the video's on, it's not the same. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. and the video can be distracting. You know, the video because if you were having a real conversation face-to-face, you're really focusing on the person. Now, if somebody were to walk past your door there, my my eye would be drawn to it. Whereas in real world, the real world, you'd be much bigger. You'd be in front of me, and there is more for me to look at or to, or to process by looking at you. Yes. And I, I could miss what was going on next door. Yes. In fact, I I'd, I'd saw a really, and I haven't, I'd, it was just kind of past. <laughs> Somebody's just in. in fact, it's just happened. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect demonstration. There you go, on cue. That was my son. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> I'll pay you later. Um, yeah. Well, oh, yes. It was really interesting. I haven't, it, it just kind of passed my eyes as it was going through on the research briefing. Um, uh, yeah, I've completely forgotten where I was then. Um what were we talking about? We were talking um, about distraction and cognitive overload. <laughs> Dissonance. Overload. Yes, that was it. Um, and, and it, oh, yes. It, and it was talking about cameras and what you can see and what people look at whilst they're on Zoom meetings, for example. And and this study was looking at the, so they had sensors looking at the eyes. Like the eye and tracking. it was in a, in, in a company. And people spend most of their time looking at themselves while yes. they're talking. Yes. Not looking at the person who's yeah. the recipient. Yeah. Which I found was fascinating and how yeah. that must change the communication. I don't know what else that's saying. Yeah, well, it must make you more <laughs> self-aware of yourself, which, you know, may be beneficial or could be 
harmful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. yeah, interesting. And of course, if you turn off okay. your video so you can't see you, then neither can the other person. I know. <laughs> yes. And that was one of the other things that we were talking about, which is to do a lot of students these days don't like having their cameras on whilst they're being taught, which causes problems then for the lecturers and, and for the teachers mm -hmm. uh, because they get no none of that feedback. But anyway, that's that's by the by. Um, right. Um, so um, if you were to choose one area um, that you think neurology can be helpful for for learning and development pr um, professionals, what would it be and practically how does it help? I think memory is probably the most, well, do I think memory is the most important one? <laughs> I think, no, I'll tell you which one I think is most neglected at the moment. And I think that's the importance of our whole integrated bodies in terms of learning. You know, people think it's about giving you information and we can do that through a video or auditory. But actually, we learn best when we integrate everything. So I think it's about increasing the use of movement and other sensory input. So how can we introduce more sensory input? And, you know, again, a challenge with digital, but even things like using sensory language, you know, using sensory metaphors and things can at least tweak those parts of the people's brains that are processing sensory stuff. So, you know, using visual imagery, using visioning and things like that, but using all kinds of metaphors. And it's been shown that, you know, that sort of thing does stimulate people's brains more than just talking in, you know, very abstract, fluffy words that nobody can get a grasp on. So, yeah, I think that's actually a very important one that probably not enough work done on. I agree. And I, I, I think quite a lot of L&D professionals kind of focus on the brain stuff rather than that realization that we're a, a series of learning systems yeah. and not just one. So we've got a, like just go, going, you know, going back to Bloom's stuff around cognitive learning systems, affective or emotional and value learning systems and psychomotor learning systems, yeah. even at that basic level is that realization that, and, and they're not separate learning systems, they're interlinked and connected. And I, I think, that understanding can actually transform a trainer's or a facilitator's practice, actually. Um, I mean, we've definitely found, you know, I've observed over, over, I was going to say thousands of years, not many thousands of years, but, you know, a long time. <laughs> um, if yeah. you encourage people to stand up and have a conversation, you know, call them over to, we often sort of map out a model on the floor, for instance, and you put the model on the floor and you get them to stand in the model. What we found is that the quality of the questions from the learners, from the participants, and the quality of the conversations is far greater than if you did that on a whiteboard or you know whatever else other way you did it. And I am convinced that is because they're standing, they're feeling more energized, they're feeling more engaged, and there's something communal about all being doing the same thing that it. it it's probably a psychological safety thing as much as anything else. It allows them to ask those questions. Yeah, it's a big, in fact, so my background before academia was in the emergency services and um, they use an awful lot of simulations in their training to actually go and 
you know, out of the classroom to go and experience what it's like being in this process, to experience what it's like being with a team, but also to debrief in that in the context rather yes. than debriefing outside of the context yes. has been found to be very, very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Contextual learning is enormously important. And so often we take people out of the workplace and put them in a classroom and expect them to then take it back. I once worked with a company who were training people to clean trains, which is a pretty physical job on the whole and has, you know, certain visceral aspects to it. You may or may not want to know about, (laughs) but they were teaching people to do it using PowerPoint slides and then wondering why the trains weren't being cleaned. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And in fact, that's a, that's a, a big issue in all training is that transfer of learning into the yeah. workplace. And yeah. some of that is context, a large part of that is contextual. And, and certainly understanding not just the neurology, but understanding some of the, the evidence behind learning and, and teaching can help to create, bridge that gap in, yeah. in terms of transfer. Yeah. Okay. So whilst I know this, that the book's aimed at, learning and development professionals, what about the learner? And and this is a horrible question to ask you, I I get that. But if there were three things that learners can do to help to create change, which is what learning's about at the end of the day, what would they be? To help learners create change for themselves? Yes, yes. I'm going to give you six but I'll do it quickly and I'll link them. Bonus. <laughs> Just because it makes it easy for people to remember. And this is about helping your learning and memory in particular. So first of all, link to what you already know. So don't just try and learn something without connecting it. Link it to what you already know. So what you're going to get at the end of this six is is the mnemonic learns. So L for link, Um, E for use emotion. Find the emotion in whatever it is you're trying to learn. You know, and it could be something really boring. It might be Excel spreadsheets or it might be health and safety. But if you don't do this health and safety training, what might be the impact? You know, get some emotion in it. Uh, Pay attention. Attention is the the gateway to memory. So if you're not paying attention, you won't remember, as you said earlier on. Uh, Repetition, repetition, repetition. Um, You know, that is how we strengthen our neurons. You have to keep repeating. N is for novelty. So find things that are novel and new because our attention is drawn to novel and new things. So find find ways of doing things new or look for new information. And then the last one is S, which is for stories. Use stories, create stories, build your own stories. Because stories link to what you know, create emotions, you pay attention, you repeat in them, and they usually, you know, you can always find something new in a story. So if you're a learner and you're trying to do something, learns is the thing to remember. I really like that. And and well, it's, it's all linked anyway, because one of the things as I, I teach the lecturers to teach at the university, and one of the things that I say to them is that we leave stories behind at, at, at the cost of the learner. Our brains are pre-programmed for stories and yeah. for narrative. Yeah. And it, it's the biggest industry on this earth for, uh, for that reason. Yeah. Now, all the books, all the magazines, all the films, Netflix, even the news doesn't present the news in a series of bullet points. It even goes to the extent of sending some poor hack out into the rain and the floods. Yeah, in, to in tell the dark. a story. 
to tell a story because they're part of the story. It situates it, and and it's situating things into a narrative yeah. is a critical process for learning. Yeah, and and both from the the, the teacher, trainer, coach, whatever they happen to be, angle of situating the learning into a narrative, but also if you're a learner, being able to create a narrative for themselves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. I like that. And and, you know, every learner loves to tell a story or most learners love to tell a story. And most people like to hear a story as long as it's not too long and too complicated. So, you know, I think practice the art of short stories telling quick stories. Um, I think as, as a trainer, that's a really important thing to be able to do. Yes. And and if you think about good stories or good books, going back to the curiosity thing, is that what they do is they open out with some form of dilemma that then yeah. needs to be solved, which is a really good way of engaging learners, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Always give them a puzzle to solve. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We love problems. Yeah. I know, that sounds there's, a bit some, weird. there's some really interesting evidence that shows that if you ask somebody to guess the answer to a question, they are more likely to remember the answer, even if they get the answer wrong, as long as you give them the correct answer or they achieve the correct answer quite quickly. But if they guess the answer, they're more likely to remember it than if you just tell them. So always, you know, just explain to people, I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to guess, ask you to guess it. And if you guess it wrong, doesn't matter because you'll still remember it better than if I just tell you. Yes. Yeah. Actually, I, I saw that paper not so long ago. Yeah. Yeah, good. <laughs> That's brilliant. Okay. As I've said earlier, there's so much in this book uh, and it's really difficult to do it justice in just a short kind of interview. Um, and I'll post a link to the book in, in the show notes. However, if people want to contact you, what's the best way of doing it? Uh, they can contact me through my email, which is stella.collins at stellalabs.eu. Or I'm on Twitter as Stella Collins. And I'm also on LinkedIn as Stella Collins. We'll put links to all of that in the, in the show notes. Um, it's a really great book. And obviously, I'm a little biased because I'm, I'm, I'm in the area anyway. Um, and if you're in learning and development, teacher, trainer, facilitator, or even a coach, you know, there's a lot here that's going to transform your, your practice. And it's it's kind of like the primer that I wish I'd had years ago. And and I've got to be honest here. So to own up to a little bit of jealousy, it's the book that I wish I'd written. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank <laughs> you, David. Thank you so much. It's, that's, it's that's really cool. That's so. a real compliment. <laughs> yeah. um, and so if it's, it's a plug for college. us, it's we a- also run programs too. Cool. cool. I'll have to have a look at those. <laughs> um, I'd just like to thank you so much for your generosity with your knowledge, expertise and time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Nice to meet you again. Thank you for listening to the Oxford Review podcast. For free research briefings, audio and video research briefings, research infographics and a whole lot more, visit oxford-review.com. That's oxford-review.com. And please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to us to have your feedback so that we can make this podcast even better for you. Mm-hmm.